This morning's call to worship is from Revelation 5, verses 11 to 14, or in your pew Bibles on page 1,141. Then I looked up and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in, the, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Uh, today's New Testament reading is found in uh, Acts 10, uh, verse 36 through 43, and in your pew Bibles, that is page uh, 1041. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the providence of Judah, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses, from, by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him and everyone, that everyone who believes him receives forgiveness of the sins through his name. Today's gospel reading is uh, John 1, 14 through 18 and verse 29 through 34. That's page 977 and 78 in your pew Bible. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he, has, he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen, yeah, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in, clo in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. All right, verse 29. The next, day, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me but because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then, God, then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with the water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the, only, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Are we good? Yeah. Last week I attempted to establish that we are not here trying to set forth a history of God. You see, uh, God has a history, but it's more of a human understanding history. God has a history that exists in time apart from all of us, and He has a history that exists in terms of the revelation of Himself as we've understood Him through time. There's a whole evolution, if you'll pardon the term, in the human story of understanding and relating to God. And we're at a very blessed time in history because we have 2,000 years of rich Christian tradition and text that informs us of a God who loves us, listens to us, cares about us, saves us, and will redeem us. And so we're in a very unique and wonderful spot there. So I want to be clear, I'm not trying to write today or speak today the history of God, but I do want to um, share a little bit about this, this idea of God that we began last week. Last week we began with the story of God as one who generates, one who speaks and things become or come into being. And how rich that is in terms of our own experience and our own lives, our own being versus non-being. We even touched a little bit on some traditional proofs of God, but uh, through the avenue of what I, uh, the big word I gave you last week. Do you remember the big philosophical word I gave you last week? It starts with an E. My wife remembers. I hear it over here. Didn't I hear it over here? Epistemology, yes. It's a big word, isn't it? Yeah, epistemology is the, is the study of how we know what we know. And we talked a little bit about the authority that comes through revelation, and we talked about being, and we talked a few other epistemologies. Those are big words, but the idea is these are some of the ways in which we have knowledge, sure knowledge, of the God we claim to worship and know. So this week we're going to continue in a slightly different vein. Today we're going to talk about God's story in terms of His power to redeem, and really the bulk of Scripture is focused on this, so I'm not even going to begin to begin to do it justice. How's that? Do you understand what I'm saying there? I'm not even beginning to begin to begin to do justice to this story. So. Uh, we will just graze the surface, needless to say. But we're going to focus today briefly on God as Redeemer. Now, what this has to do with is relationship. It has to do with the story of humanity as relates to the story of God, because when He spoke and created all that is, and when He knelt in the dust and fashioned us in His image and breathed into us the breath of life when he animated us, when he gave us freedom and thought and sentience and feeling and all the things that we feel, when he made it imperative that we have a long time coming to maturation and maturity, uh, all the steps to get there and what that involves in growing up, when he, when he imbued us with this complexity that he gave us, it wasn't inevitable by any means that sin would enter the picture, but it was possible. And I, I want to make sure before we uh, get lost in this that we understand that sin is never trivial. 
and we have a tendency to trivialize it. We want to look at sin as the little things we've done or not done. We want to look at sin as those little failures along the way, and we might accurately classify some of those as sin. But the essence of sin, the core of sin, is a heart of rebellion against a God who loves us. It's the will to self-destruct. Does that make sense to everybody? That's powerful. See, when we're teaching children and we're trying to bring them along in little moral lessons, we frame things in good and bad, and we're raised, all of us, with the idea that this behavior is offensive and this behavior is not, and because this behavior is offensive, it's tantamount to sin, and very often that becomes our adult definition of how we relate to God. What we've failed to do is outgrow an old understanding that was helpful to us developmentally, but maybe not helpful to us as adults. Because as we're going to explore in another sermon another time, it's possible to live as an adult believing that we have some kind of relationship with God that matters or makes a difference in some sort of intellectual way, but practically, functionally, our daily experience is devoid of a walk with God. Our daily experience is characterized more by the nature in which we live than the person God calls us to be. Isolation rather than relatedness. So I don't want to trivialize sin this morning, but it's out of all of this that God enters the picture and he becomes not just the God who reveals himself, not just the God who reveals himself in the garden, not just the God who speaks and listens, not just the God who inspires the prophets who write, but he becomes the God who reveals himself in a very particular way. God with us as one of us. And we find the fullest and most complete picture of the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ. And now we have not only someone walking with us, and by the way, we think that he came to teach us, and I want to suggest that he did, but he also came to learn something. We say you can never know someone else's trials or life or thing until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Have you heard that saying? It's actually an, an American Indian saying, moccasin. It is... The fact is we can never judge another human being because we don't know their experience. We don't know what their journey looks like or feels like to them. We don't know their pains and sorrows. We don't know their weaknesses and afflictions. We don't know the difficulties and the challenges that they're going through. And yet we as humans are so quick to judge. And God said, I don't want to judge without having learned something first. Now, that's going to be shocking to some of you because I know some of you believe God can't learn. He already knows everything there is to know. And what I want you to wrestle with, if that's what you believe, is that before evil was, then he already knew everything there was about evil and knew what evil was and what it was like to participate in evil. If he knew everything, he knew that. And that means that you have a very different kind of God than the God we have been taught to worship in Christianity a very different kind of being who knew evil before evil was. Very different. 
So God enters our humanity and he enters our pains and our sorrows and he sees firsthand what sin does and sees firsthand how people suffer only from a position of not choosing sin himself. How powerful is that? Like the first Adam before him, he has no natural propensity for sin, only the body of one with 2,000 years of degradation or more. Much more, actually. So Christ comes as this figure, God and man, both man, fully God, fully man. I'm not speaking very well, am I? Let me try that again. Jesus comes fully human, fully divine. Was that better? Glad this isn't being filmed today. And enters our world and our pain and our sorrows and our sin and learns from us while teaching us the love of the Father and revealing the Father's love to us and his intention that our lives should be about thriving in his love and care, not dying. And that our death problem is going to be swallowed up in the victory he has over death in resurrection. And so in two ways he becomes our savior. He becomes our savior because he enters our world and helps us understand and deal with the relational problem that we have with God, the sin problem. And he saves us from ourselves in that death no longer becomes the end of our story. Death becomes an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed in resurrection and resurrection life and life with God to come. So in every way possible, he saved us. Chosen to do this from the beginning of time. Chosen to be the kind of God who loved that much. Chosen to be the kind of God who would not only reveal himself, but give up himself. That's the love that we're dealing with. That's the story of God. See, the story of God is, is that he speaks and things become and he enters our world and changes everything. I want you to think back for just a minute. If there was a time in your life when you didn't know Jesus, and when you first heard, and when you began to realize who Jesus was and who Jesus could be to you, I want you to remember what you were thinking, how that felt, what the power of that revelation met, meant to you. Jesus Christ lives. And he lives in me and through me and for me. He's redeemed me. He's created me. What was that revelation like? And if you've always grown up, your parents read you the Bible stories from an early age, Go back in a time when you trusted implicitly, if simply. And then move forward to times when you were maturing and experienced some questions and doubts. You were wrestling with some things. Remember the solutions that came to you. Remember what it was like to finally realize that you didn't have a lifestyle necessarily that you needed to turn away from because you'd been raised in a lifestyle that was Christian 
but that you realized that your heart itself needed opening up and Jesus had the key. And that something could be different in you from that point forward. You see, the last chapter of the story of God or the next chapter of the story of God is the story of God and us. It's our story. It's his story. They're inter intertwined. When Jesus became one of us and walked on this earth, his story became part of the human story and the human story became part of the divine story in a way that had never happened before and that could never leave the world the same place since. So our text today speak to three different things. Revelation is a scene of praise from the throne in heaven. It's a scene of majesty, tremendous grandeur. And because hyperinflation didn't exist back then, they had gold coins and a gold coin was a gold coin, tens of thousands was a lot. And thousands times 10,000, uh, 10,000 times 10,000 was a lot. That's a very small number in today's world. But what the scripture is telling us is that the host of heaven, all of creation is worshiping God. And the song that they are singing is a new one. You are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. That's the praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. A hymn of praise to our God who's redeemed us and restored us. That's the Revelation text we read. The Acts text is a testimony. This is going to be a year in which we tell our story. Peter's had a vision. He's at the home of Cornelius, the centurion, and he is explaining the gospel in straightforward terms. He hasn't yet emotionally accepted what he's about to say. He hasn't yet intellectually gotten his mind all the way around the inclusion of the Gentiles in the gospel, but he says this, I realize now, or how true it is, that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God sent to the people of Israel a message announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of evil or the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did. In the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he's the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name. That's the gospel. It's the story of Jesus. And it's the story of God with us, part two. The John text is all based in John chapter one, an, an expose, an, an, an expansion, if you will, of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse two, he was with God in the beginning. From this Christology of John's, we move to the passages read today, 14 to 18 and 29 to 34. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the God who redeems. John 13, as Jesus comes to the end of his journey and is about to die on that cross for our redemption, tells his disciples to serve as he has served, to love as he has loved. He's stripped off his outer cloak and he's performed the services of a goyim, a non-Jewish person, a servant, who would wash the disciples' feet in preparation for Passover. And he said, is the servant greater than the master? Well, we don't have servants and masters so much in our society, but is the employee greater than the boss? Jesus says, do as I've done. And so from here I dismiss you that you might go to the rooms designated for this service and that we might do as Jesus did for his disciples, washing one another's feet as he commanded us in preparation for the table in which we celebrate not just his death and resurrection, but the community of all who believe. Thank you. You may be dismissed.